Right. All right. Uh, one thing. April 10th, we are having a newcomer party. A newcomer party is where we, if you're new or newer to Element, you can connect to some other people. So if you invite someone to come to Easter services, that's the Friday right after it. So if you invite somebody to come, why don't you just take them with you to the newcomer party so they can meet some other people. And that means you have to go as well and they can't get out of it. So, you know, you just kind of come and hang out, get to know us. We'll feed you a whole bunch of, you know, dessert and sugar and you can... Not crash your car, but you can like physically crash on the way home because all the sugar kind of wears off on the way home. It's like you got that, you know, coma you hit into after. You're going to be a tough service. Okay. Yeah, you're just like, it's 11. I don't know what's going on. Okay. So, (laughs) welcome to Element. There are Bibles in the back. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes on all the communion tables throughout the room. Uh, inside those sermon notes, you'll get some notes that go along with the message, some questions on the back. Uh, there's some announcements about what's going on around here. Uh, if you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Click on Live in Uversion. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone. You will get the sermon notes and the questions and the verses and the announcements, everything that goes along with today's message. Uh, my name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors here. I want you to stand with me, reading of God's Word. We will get started. This is John chapter 19, verse 12. And it says, from then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Let's pray. Father, this morning I ask that you would teach us what it means to be a people who worship you as you have revealed yourself to be. That we don't try and put you into a mold of our own making but we stand back and realize that you are the great and good God who has saved us and you have revealed yourself and we would worship you in the trueness of who you revealed yourself to be. Amen. Have a seat. So we have three weeks, well, depending on how you do the math, maybe two weeks until Easter. Uh, We spent the last seven weeks in a more intense reflection about our lives and what God is calling us to in our lives, our failings, the grace of Jesus. Uh, We have called this our Lent-like journey as we have allowed God to shine his bright light into the deep recesses of our hearts and our souls to dig out all the things that we try to hide so we can expose them to his light and we can begin to work through those things. Now, uh, we're doing this over a 10-week period. A standard Lent is just a little over six, but we did 10, and we started this by looking at the seven churches in the book of Revelation that Jesus had John write his words to. It's in Revelation 2 and 3, if you want to look it up, if you missed any of that, it's all online, you can listen to it. And I hope, I hope that you've allowed Jesus' words to dig down deep inside of you, to sink deep in that. You haven't allowed maybe the guilt over our own failings to consume you, but you also haven't blown it off either. A couple of people have said to me over the last few weeks, they're like, okay, I get it, we're bad, I get it, we're horrible. I'm like, are we done? I'm like, Maybe, I don't know, we're not done. When Easter comes, then we're, right, we're going to be the joy of Easter and all that. So the next part of our Lent journey uh, is going to last these two weeks and then you know, going into Easter and our celebration of resurrection and all that that entails. Uh, a little over a year ago, we did this series on Jesus, the great things that he did throughout history, the amazing changes that he made. Now, I took most of my message out of a book I was reading at the time uh, by John, John Rupert called Who Is This Man? And these next three weeks are kind of going to be a little extension of that. I once 
once heard this guy named Don Davis, you know, great big African-American preacher, great guy, and he starts talking about this thing called the triduum just really shortly in the middle of something, and it sparks something in the back of my mind. And the triduum is a Latin phrase that means three days. It's the Friday, Saturday, and Sunday of Jesus' death and resurrection, the three days that changed the world. His message wasn't about it, but it just kind of sparks something in the back of my mind. So I wrote it down and thought, one day we're going to talk to the triduum. That's what we're going to do. And as I was reading through John Ortberg's book, he actually takes and covers Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and I thought, great, saves me time. So, whatever. So, we're going to take a lot of stuff out of the book. I'll, I'll quote to you a lot of things that we do. But these do cover the three days that change the world. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, today, following our Lenten journey, we're going to talk about Friday. We're going to deal through a decent amount of historical material. It's important for you and I to remember and understand that Christianity is an historical faith rooted in real-world events. And by understanding that, it can give us a sense of the newness of life that God wants to call us into and also the mission he wants to be with us on in the world around us. It's really important that we understand things in history continue to be lived out because it's really God's story in all things. And so we've got to remember Lent is meant to be introspective and refreshing both at the same time. So in covering Friday, when you read the scriptures, you don't really know what time everything actually happened. It's kind of vague like that. So we'll start at the end, and then we'll kind of work our way through all the stuff. If you look at the last moment that we look at on Friday, you look outside the gates of Jerusalem, and there'll be three crosses there. On the outside two crosses, there are two thieves hanging on them, but the cross in the middle is empty because the person on it has already died. But on top of this cross, there is a sign. It's written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek, and it says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Now, John Ortberg in the book asks this. He says, how did Friday end as Friday? Why did Jesus die? How did this man, meek and mild, blesser of little children, friend of sinners, end up being executed as an enemy of the state? And if you are somebody who runs around in your little tinfoil hat so the government black helicopters can't read your mind, this is a perfect message for you. Okay? This is all about conspiracies, right? There's backroom deals and public deals and private and all these, all these things are going on to end up seeing that Jesus was crucified. And as you walk through the ramifications of what takes place on Friday, you'll start to realize that all the people who thought they were in charge, they weren't really in charge. Everybody thought they orchestrated this whole thing, weren't really orchestrating anything. Because we know it was Jesus from the foundation of the world who willingly came and substituted himself for our sin. So today we're going to look at the major players in the story. We'll see what they want. And at the end, we'll look at whose agenda actually won and triumphed. I think in the book, John Ortberg has like five players. I have 12 because I make everything longer. I get it. I know. Uh, But the first player in the story we're going to look at is Rome. And if you asked Rome, like you could ask a country a question, like why Rome, why did Jesus have to die? Well, they would say that Jesus was a threat to Rome and any threat to Rome has to die. So why is Jesus a threat? Well, mostly it goes to his name or more importantly, his title. I mean, today, you know, names are kind of important. You all, you know, if you have kids, you name your kids something. And names have a variety of meanings. And sometimes those things change. Like today, almost nobody names their kid Adolf. At one point, it was very popular, but not anymore. Uh, Nobody names their kid Judas anymore, but at one point, it was also very popular. Actually, Jesus' brother was named Judas. They think that actually the book of Jude was Judas, but nobody wanted to put Judas in the Bible, so they just called it Jude. We'll nickname, we'll shorten it up, we'll call it Jude, and, and we'll be okay. Now, a lot of people think Jesus' last name is Christ, and it's not. It's not like it was Mary and Joseph Christ and their son Jesus, okay? It's Christ... 
Christ is this Greek term, and it means creo, it means anointed one, basically anointed by God. He is the Messiah. And if you are a Jew, this idea of the Messiah or the idea of Christ is very important, especially when you come to look at Jesus. Now, believe it or not, in Jesus' day, or leading up to Jesus' day, there were a lot of people who claimed to be the Messiah. A lot of people. They said, I'm the Savior, I'm the Deliverer, I'm the Redeemer. I mean, can you imagine, I know it's really hard, but the Middle East being a volatile place, I mean, really? I mean, like, religious devotion runs, runs really high. There's riots and there's fighting and craziness that can break out at any second. And again, it's hard to imagine, but in Jesus' day, that's what it was like. Second player in the story is the crowds in Jerusalem. Now, these people are there because they're waiting for this political, military leader, Messiah, who will lead them in a revolt against Rome. They want somebody who will show up and overthrow Rome, but also take out all the corruption in their own temple because Rome had their fingers in their temple. They want someone who will step forward and lead Israel so it can step into freedom and be the country it was meant to be as God's places chosen people so all the world will look and they will envy them as if that was ever the point of being God's chosen people in the first place. Open your Bibles to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5, verse 36. So because of all these things, there's a bunch of these other messiahs starting to run around the centuries before and even a little bit after Jesus. And everyone had different ideas of what the messiah would do, could, should be, all of that. But it was also almost universally agreed that the messiah was going to be a powerful figure who would lead Israel to freedom and overthrow Rome. Now, the book of Acts talks about a couple of these. Acts 5, verse 36 says this, For before these days Thudas rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. So you have this guy, his name's Thudas. Uh, the Roman Jewish historian uh, Josephus talks about him. Uh, he said uh, Thudas called himself a messiah. He claimed that he could uh, part the Jordan River and he would cause the walls of Jerusalem to fall down. So he gets this crowd around him. He leads an insurgency against Rome and he ends up being captured by Rome. He is decapitated in Jerusalem in front of these crowds who are following him. Verse 37, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in, these day, in the days of the census. When are the days of the census? It's when Jesus was born. Okay, all the way back then. And drew away some people after him. So another one is known as Judas the Galilean. Think about how awkward that would be for us today. Judas Christ. Right? Like, ooh, ah, I don't know if I like that. that that's just, just weird. He is also killed by Rome. Josephus also lets you know about him. Uh, he started this group called the Zealots. Uh, Judas was a lot like people today who was like, you know, we've got to return to God and country. Get rid of the government. Stop paying taxes. And, all, and as soon as you say stop paying taxes, people are like, oh, I'll join that. Where do I stop paying taxes? I want, to be, I want to be part of that. Can you imagine people getting worked up over paying taxes? Yeah, okay. So the, yeah, okay. So the zealots, you are, we go. Right, okay. So the zealots, what they do is they get a lot of people following them to try and go and, and overthrow Rome. They believe God would honor this, that God would step in when they had enough people doing this, he would tear down Rome. But what eventually happened was his followers got captured by Rome, he got captured, and they crucified 2,000 of them in a single day. Most historians believe it's in a place called Sepphoris, which is right outside of Galilee, where Jesus grew up. So Jesus, as a kid, he grows up in Galilee. And there'd be all these stories about these large-in-life tales of Judas the Galilean who got crucified. And you really got to be thinking, anybody who wanted to be a Messiah is going to be dead pretty quickly. But how do you know if you're the Messiah or not? Now, th this is kind of like the lotto today. The lotto does that thing, you can't win if you don't play, right? Make some of you guys play the lotto. I know you're like, oh, I'll buy that. I can't win if I can't play. 
The lotto is telling you that, okay? So they got a vested interest. They're trying to convince you. Whatever, okay. Apparently, you guys are like, I still don't get it. I'll buy my lottery ticket and talk to you later. Okay, whatever, whatever. But this is the kind of thing. How do you know if you're the Messiah? Well, you can't win if you don't play. If you don't step in and try it, how does anybody know? All the crowds thought the Messiah would be the guy that overthrew Rome. And so that's the thing. You know, if you, if you don't try it, then you never know if you're the guy or not. And if you do try it and you get killed, well, obviously, then you, you weren't the guy. The common thinking is, if you get crucified, you aren't the Messiah. Why? Because Rome killed you. There were, that we know of at this point, about 18 separate wannabe messiahs by Jesus' day. They all died. They all died. Many of these would-be messiahs saw themselves as freedom fighters. They would go in and they would raid Roman uh, munitions depots, and they thought that everything that was the Romans was already theirs because you just stole it from us. So they'd go in and they'd try and steal all their stuff back. And if you got caught following one of these messiahs and got arrested you would be killed as a message that said, don't follow one of these messiahs. Normal thieves, if you got busted stealing something, you'd be beaten or thrown in jail or sold as a slave, but almost none were ever crucified unless you follow a false messiah, which leads to, open to Luke chapter 23, third player in the story is the thieves crucified with Jesus. Why are these guys being crucified out there next to Jesus? Many scholars now believe that the ones following or crucified with Jesus were actually following a zealot messiah raiding Roman arsenals, and they got caught. And if this is true, something amazing is actually happening with the thieves being crucified with Jesus. Luke 23, verse 39 says, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. That sounds like me. That would be me. Like, boom! I followed the wrong guy. Are you the right guy? Can you get me off here? Because this sucks. Okay. Right? I'm that guy. If you just get me off here, I will totally follow you. Right? Verse 40. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. There is something about the person of Jesus Christ that even while being crucified, this man saw it. And he surrendered his life to the saving grace of Jesus while hanging on a cross next to him. Jesus wasn't a military leader. He refuses to lift a finger against Rome. So why does he die on a cross? Well, there's more to the story. Cover a whole bunch of people here. The fourth player in the story is a guy named Pilate. Pilate rules over Judea and Jerusalem on behalf of Caesar. Pilate's job is simply a big headache. Nobody who has earned the rank and position of somebody like Pilate ever wants to end up in the Middle East because it's a political nightmare. He must have made somebody mad somewhere along the way. It's like if you make it to VP at vice president, sorry, I guess you don't know, vice president at your company, and next thing you know, they got your guard in the toilet. That's Pilate. That, that's Pilate. He doesn't really know what to do in this. He's got to juggle all these different factions. The fifth player in the story is the chief priests. The chief priests are the guys in charge of the temple. They collaborate with Rome because Rome keeps them in power. So they stay kind of close to Rome, but not too close. If they get too close to Rome, then the crowds don't like them, and the crowds are, crowds are going to run, run them out. Sixth player in the story is the Pharisees. These are the teachers, mostly of the teachers of the law. What they want to do is purify Israel. We want Israel to go back to the Bible. All of our nation's problems are because we're not following the Torah. They believe if they get people to go back to the Bible, then God would show up and destroy Rome and liberate all of them. The seventh player in the story are the zealots. We talked about them a second ago. They want to fight. 
They want to fight everybody. It's like, you looking at me? No, you want to be looking at me? Like, that, that's them, right? And they're, they're like, you know, Rome is evil. We got to be courageous and fight. When enough people take up arms, we will go and we will take them out and God will wipe them out of our country. It's like the first starts of like, a, God helps those who helps themselves. It's not in the Bible, by the way, okay? Eighth pair in the story is the Essenes. They just withdraw from everything. The Romans are bad. The temple is bad. So they pack up and head to the hills like doomsdayers. They put fences around their property, protected by Smith and Wesson. You know, that, that's these guys right here. They wouldn't go to the temple. They wouldn't bring sacrifices. They started their own little cult community where everybody would agree with them. And once enough people agreed with them, they believed God would show up and wipe everybody else out. Kind of a little theme going on there, right? Now, all these people eventually end up agreeing that Jesus needs to be crucified. None of these groups get along with each other on the outside, but they all come together to form an alliance to make it happen. Now, Pilate's job is to try to put a lid on any type of messes taking place in the Middle East. Historically speaking, he is simply ruthless in how he did it. In Luke chapter 13, it talks about this little story of how he killed some Galileans while they were worshiping God. They actually mixed their blood with the blood of sacrifice on the altar, which is a thing you just you don't do. I mean, the temple is like the holiest place on earth for these people. And, you know, it's, it kind of be like us when someone, like, burns down or graffitis a church. We're like, oh, that's horrible. Nobody should do that. that. That's kind of this. At some point, Pilate deemed these Galileans to be a threat of some sort. So he executes them in the holiest place on earth and probably one of the holiest moments of their lives. Another time, Pilate actually steals some money from the temple. So what do the Israelites do? They protest. What does Pilate do? Has all the protesters executed. Like you do, right? You know, and after, even after Jesus dies and rises from the grave, Pilate still slaughters so many people that there's so much unrest that word gets back to Caesar. Eventually, Caesar fires Pilate and recalls him to Rome. And historically speaking, that's the last time you ever hear of Pilate. I wonder what happened. I don't know. I'm just saying, it's a conspiracy, right? Uh, John. John Ortberg quotes the historian Philo as saying, Pilate's rule was marked by bribery, insults, robberies, supreme cruelty, executions without a trial, and a furious, vindictive temper. Aren't you glad politicians today are so much better? Okay, so, that was a joke, okay? Whatever. Uh, when, when the chief priests bring Jesus to Pilate, they've got to have a charge against him to try to make something stick to get Pilate's attention. Luke 23, verse 3. We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute, that's the word taxes, to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. Now, you've got to understand, the chief priests, they don't want to pay taxes either. But what they're trying to do is put pressure on Pilate to convince Pilate that Jesus is your problem. He's not ours, he's yours, kill him. And so what Pilate does is he actually kind of pushes back against them, which is, which is really interesting because Pilate didn't really mind killing anybody, but he pushes back against them. And don't worry, it's not out of any sentimental feelings for Jesus whatsoever. It's simply he hates the chief priests. He doesn't want to do anything that helps him. He's always trying to poke them back in, in the eye. And if they get stronger, he gets weaker, so he defies them for any reason that, that he can. This is politics and power. So Pilate finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. Ninth player in the story is this guy named Herod. Now, Herod is the governor ruling the area of Galilee. And so Pilate says, you know, this is a mess. I'll just send him over to Herod, let Herod take care of it. Herod's always wanted to meet Jesus. So he shows up, he talks to Jesus, and he's like, oh, my goodness, this is a nightmare. I'm going to touch him with a 10-foot pole. Sends him back to Pilate and says, yeah, I don't want to touch this. Sends him back. So then Pilate then turns to the crowds in the temple. That's the 10th player in the story, the crowds at the temple. 
Again, they are there now celebrating Passover. Uh, This is the biggest event in the Jewish calendar. Remembering when God came and set his people free from slavery in Egypt. There is partying, there is feasting, there is drinking. And during this celebration, in an effort to poke the chief priest in the eye again, Pilate seems like he's being very magnanimous. And he stands up and he says, you know what? I'm going to release one person to you. Do you want me to release Jesus, who you guys loved just a week ago, or this murderer, awful, horrible person, Barabbas, That guy that nobody likes. Which one do you want me to release to you? I'll release one of them. What do the crowds say? Well, they get stirred up by all the religious leaders, and they say, release Barabbas. Why Barabbas? Because Jesus wouldn't lift a finger against Rome, and Barabbas was willing to kill Romans. If you've ever seen like a passion player cantata or something like that about this scene, this is where, you know, Pilate gets up and he washes his hands. This found in, in Matthew 27, 24. And it's not that Pilate has a sensitive conscience whatsoever. He's simply making a show. He could really care less about some peasant carpenter claiming to be a Messiah. He's making this show. In John 19, verse 15, it says, They cried out, Away with him, crucify him. So Pilate, sticking it in their eye again, says, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered. Imagine these words coming from a Jewish chief priest. We have no king but Caesar. That is not something that's said. Eleventh player in the story, Caesar. Caesar. Caesar, ruler of the Rome, ruler of the known world. What does Caesar want? Caesar wants food. Okay, Caesar wants grain. He has an empire. He needs to feed it. And Rome at this point had become dependent on grain from Egypt and the Middle East. Uh, grain is kind of like oil is now. Caesar needs grain and the population to do their job. Uh, okay, let me see if I can make sense to you. Uh, this is like the Hunger Games, Okay. Right? Okay. Oh, now you're paying attention. Oh, Katniss Everdeen, I'm there. What's going on with this? Okay, so this is the Hunger Games, right? Pilate is like, is like over one of the districts, and they're the ones that make the grain. And President Snow, we don't want him to get angry because he's going to show... See, right? I'll take out that Pilate. So what Pilate wants to do, you know, is he wants to make sure that he's never soft on anti-Roman terrorists. It's interesting because at one point, Pilate asked Jesus, it's in Luke 23.3, Mark 15.2, Matthew 27.11, John 18.33. He says, are you the king of the Jews? It's like this thing in every single gospel account. Now, early in Jesus' ministry, if he said, I am the king of the Jews, a good chunk of Israel would have risen up and they would have fought and they would have died for Jesus. Just a week before the crucifixion is Palm Sunday. They're getting ready to celebrate the Passover. They're coming into this idea, again, of where Moses led his people out of slavery, that God shows up and destroys the Egyptian army, sets his people free. They're celebrating this, and Jesus shows up. In Matthew 21, 9, Jesus rides into town, and everybody's saying, Hosanna to the son of David. They're celebrating him as a warrior king. You're going to come in. You're going to make a difference. You're going to do all of this stuff. But what is Jesus riding into town on? It's on a donkey. Now, when a king showed up, it was for for a purpose of war. He showed up on a horse. When a king showed up for a purpose of peace, it's on a donkey. Book of Revelation, Jesus comes back on a horse. Right? Here he shows up on a donkey for the purpose of peace. And he doesn't go after the Romans. The first thing he does is he goes to the temple and starts trying to clean up the Jewish temple. He keeps not claiming anything out loud. He's not going to be forced into any preconceived ideas of what this king should be. Although, if you read through the Old Testament, he constantly does everything that it says the Messiah will do and the Messiah will be. On Palm Sunday, the crowds are worked up like, here's the revolution. Let's go. But Jesus was not a zealot. Jesus would not revolt. 
Only when it's too late for anyone to save him. Only when he's in the hands of the chief priest and Pilate. Only when there's no chance of an army rising to defend him. Will Jesus ever give a definitive answer to the question, are you the king of the Jews? When there's no way for him to be misinterpreted as a military figure, he finally says, yes, I'm the king of the Jews. Not until then. Who makes Friday happen? See, in, Luke, in John 11, 40, 47 to 50, you know, the, Jesus is gaining popularity. The priests are like, what are we going to do? Everyone's going to follow him. When too many people follow him, Rome's going to come. And they're going to take away our place. So what do we do? And the chief priest is like, you know, well, we've got to get rid of that Jesus. So we, let's get rid of that guy. In order to do that, they had to do two things. They've got to get the crowds and Rome and Pilate to all want to crucify Jesus. So the quickest way to get Pilate to crucify Jesus is tell him that Jesus is a threat to Rome. How do you do that? He doesn't want to pay taxes, and he's claiming to be a king. Okay, I'm, I'm ready to go. The quickest way to get the crowds to crucify Jesus is charge him with blasphemy. Jesus is brought up on those two charges. In Mark 14, verses 55 and 56, you have all these false witnesses coming up as the chief priests are trying to lay false charges at Jesus' feet. None of them are agreeing with one another. And what you see is Jesus doesn't make a defense for himself. He doesn't try and correct them. He doesn't try and restate his mission correctly. He just sits in silence while they mock him. But finally, when they ask him, are you the king of the Jews? He makes this one statement. He says, I am. In Exodus 3.14, when Moses stands before the burning bush and says, when I go to Israel and I tell them, who sent me, what's your name? And God says, my name is I Am. And so Jesus takes God's name and he says, I'm God in the flesh. I am that Messiah. I am that person. And what Jesus does when he says that, it's over. He just pronounces his own death sentence. Jesus hands them what they need for their verdict against him that all those false witnesses couldn't do. He hands it to them. Why does Jesus do their work for them? Twelfth player in the story is Jesus. Okay? Jesus, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, crucified for our sins, Jesus. In the book Who Is This Man, it's pointed out that before the cross, and before me with Pilate, before the trial of the chief priest, Jesus is in a garden, it's called Gethsemane. And he has a whole lot of options open to them. He can fight like the zealots because he is young and people will follow him. He can withdraw like the Essenes into the desert, form a safe little community. Maybe the disciples would have liked that. Their life may have been a little bit easier. You know, he would collaborate with the chief priests. You know, imagine you go to the chief priests and say, you know, I got all these people following me. How about I bring them to the temple, and you can have authority over them? Imagine Jesus, you know, with the temple as the platform for his teaching, but the temple was corrupt. He could cut a deal with Pilate. Pilate, I know this is a huge headache, but you know what? I will bring these people to tow for you. I mean, imagine Jesus with the power of Rome behind him. Jesus also said he can call to his Father in heaven, ask for legions of angels, and they will come down, and they'll just take everybody out. And they'll solve it right there, right? Give me some angels, kill them all, done. Woo, that was hard work, right? Imagine that. But what does Jesus do? Mark 14, 36, he prays, Yet not what I will, but what you will. See, Jesus prays. I'm not going to run. I'm not going to deal with anything. Not my will, Father, but yours be done. Now, if Jesus fled... His disciples probably would have been gathered up and executed. So Jesus dies, and his disciples literally are saved. Jesus knows if he calls out and says, follow me, let's make a revolt, and the crowds follow him, Rome's going to come down. And Rome is going to have this huge battle with the Israelites and them, and a lot of them are going to die. And so Jesus dies to save Jerusalem. He dies for all these people who hate him. 
And he says, I'm going to lay down my life for people who don't understand. That's what I'm going to do. John Ortberg writes this. He says, he died, and out of his remarkable brilliance, from his breathtaking courage, from his inexplicable love, he sized up a situation that defeated every human attempt at correction. He identified exactly what would be needed to bring redemption. It cost him everything. It cost him his life. And he turned out to be exactly right. And 2,000 years later, here we are. I like how Jesus says it better in John 10, 17, and 18. It says, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life and I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So who's responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? Well, all 11 of the people that we talked about it, but also our own sin, obviously. I mean, throughout the entire Old Testament, it tells us that the blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin, what separates us from God and separates us from each other. And so it promises this perfect Lamb of God that will come and will die, and not just to cover our sins, but to remove our sins from us, to take our sins away. And Jesus comes, and he lives the life we should have lived. He died the death that we should have died, and he saves all of us. So our sin also, but also he was responsible you know, our Father, our great God who deemed to save us. See, Jesus knows rebels always die. Rebels always die. And we are rebels against the good and holy God. So he dies on the cross in the place of rebels. Rebels like Barabbas. I mean, Jesus literally saves Barabbas' life. Rebels like the crowds. Jesus literally dies to save people in the crowds. Like the Romans. I mean, if there was a battle, Romans would die. And so Jesus dies literally to save the lives of the Romans. He dies to save the religious leaders. And he dies to save us. He goes to the cross. He dies. And the whole world is now offered freedom from sin and death. See, Friday is amazing because Jesus is amazing. He is the true king who triumphs over it all. So my Lent questions for you as you think about all of this are these. Who would you be in the story? Who would you be in the story? Obviously, you're not Jesus, okay? So, it's like, I pick number 12. That's what I would be. No, okay. You got one of the other 11, okay? So, you, so pick one of those. Again, I would be like the guy on the cross. Not the guy who's like, I love you, Jesus. I'll go, I'd be the guy going, get me out of here, right? That, that'd be me. Uh, I, know, I know that. Uh, in what ways are you a rebel that Jesus needs to die for? Because we all rebel. We all do. We all think that we are God of our life, and we have the, the better plan for our life than God does. And so in what ways do you think you know better the call on your life than Jesus knows the call on your life? And fourthly, have you tried to push Jesus into a mold of your own making rather than acknowledge him as King of kings and Lord of lords and God of the universe? Because we all do this. We all want Jesus to be this thing so we can define him and confine him and put him just in this, no, no, this is Jesus. Here, do you want to believe in Jesus? Jesus cannot be confined. He cannot be contained. Every attempt at steering this thing in any direction, Jesus is the one who is over and above it all. It's amazing to see that he is the one in charge, even of his own death. I mean, they're responsible. We're responsible. But from the foundation of the world, Jesus deemed that he would come and die, for it separated us from God and us and each other. And this is why we as a people, we trust in his goodness and his grace, and we rest in the life that he has now offered to us. This is why we go to communion every single week. I mean, communion is that place where you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. You dip that in the wine or the grape juice. It reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me.
so that he could redeem us as a people, to wipe away our sin and call us to be a people who truly see him as he is. Our creator, our redeemer, our sustainer, our hope, everything comes from the person of Christ. It is all about Jesus. The band's going to come up. And as they do, we invite you guys to take communion and be some deacons in the back. And if you need prayer, uh, we would invite you guys to meet with one of them in the back, pray with them. I mean, maybe you've got Jesus in a little mold and you're like, you know, Jesus isn't giving me what I want. Well, that's because he's not the little Buddha belly you rub. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. You know, he's, you, you can't, you can't contain him. You can't confine him. He is God over our lives. Sometimes things come in our lives that are really, really hard to deal with and walk through. It doesn't mean that he is no longer in control. It means that he wants to walk with us through something very difficult to make us into the people he intends for us to be. He is always, always good, even when we don't understand that goodness. I mean, what, what we do at Element is, is we typically do the majority of the music after the message, because it's a response, what is God doing? What is he doing in us? And it gives you some time to reflect and to think about that. You know, we talk about prayer. It's after the message, so it's a response. We talk about giving. There's offering boxes on the side wall in the back. And, again, I say that, and people just tune me out when I get there, because after last service, some, some dude goes, hey, I have some money I want to give it to the church. Where does it go? And I go, side wall in the back. It's like I do my airplane. The aisles will light up, whatever. It's, it's all response to what he's done. You know, there, there's food in the back. We do the food in the back. You guys can connect to one another. It's, it's a response to understanding that Jesus calls us to live in community with one another. So when we talk about, you know, the hard Lent questions, we have people who can actually hold us to those, can talk with us through those things. Because, again, Jesus saves us individually, but he doesn't intend for us to live individually. He intends for us to live in community with one another. That's why we're always pushing gospel communities. Sign up in the back. Get to meet some other people and let people speak really tough and hard words into your life. But also words of grace and laughter and healing and all of those things. It's all a response to what he has first done. And he is, he is amazing, undefinable, uncontainable. And he is our God that has saved us as he determined. And so we need to worship him as he has revealed himself to be. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would remind us and teach us what it means to worship you as you have revealed yourself to be. That we would trust in the great and good promises that you gave all throughout the Old Testament that came to culmination in the person of Jesus. That we would trust you with and for our life and our hope. that you would reveal to us the ways that we have been trying to confine you to a mold of our own making. And that you would burst forth from that and reveal to us who you really are. And we would worship you in that revelation. Father, I thank you that Jesus didn't come and, and call us to be a bunch of zealots who hide in the hills come down and attack people. I think he didn't call us to be the Essenes who run away from culture. I thank you that you give us the ability to call out sin and brokenness wherever we see it and not just blindly follow any man-made system. And I thank you 
that you have revealed yourself in such real and true and honest ways. And that you would teach us individually and corporately as an entire church body to worship you as you really are. That we would understand the removal of our sins by the blood of Jesus but also the new life that is offered to us and the grace that you so freely and graciously extend to teach us to listen to the leading of your spirit and the great hope that you have bestowed to us we thank you for the amazingness of a Friday. Change us. This we pray. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.